Chapter Twenty Six of the Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Twenty Six. The party was on at the Cowles flat. People came. They all set to it, having a party, being lively and gay, whether they wanted to or not. They all talked at once and had delicious shocks over the girl from London, Nebraska who, having moved to Washington Place just a block or two from ever so many artists, was now smoking a cigarette and wearing a gown that was black and clinging. It was no news to her that men tended to become interested in her ankles, but she still went to church and was accepted by quite the nicest of the St. Ogle set to whom Gertie had introduced her. She and Gertie were the only thoroughly qualified representatives of art, but beauty and gallantry and wit were common. The conspirators in holding a party were on the male side. An insurance adjuster, who was a frat brother to Carl and Ray, though he came from Mechelen College, a young lawyer ever so jolly with a banjo, a banting clergyman who was spoken of with the masculine approval because he smoked a pipe and he said charmingly naughty things. Johnson of the Holmes and Long Island Real Estate Company and his brother of the Marnhurst Development Company. Four older men, ranging from thin-haired to very bald, who had come with their wives and secretly looked at their watches while they talked brightly with one another's wives. Five young men whom Carl could not tell apart as they all had smooth hair and eyeglasses and smart dress shirts and obliging smiles and complimentary references to his aviating. He gave up trying to remember which was which. It was equally hard to remember which of the women Gertie knew as a result of her girlhood visit to New York, which from their membership in St. Ogle's Church, which from the relation into Minnesota. They all sat in rows on couches and chairs and called him, You wicked man, for reason none too clear to him. He finally fled from them and joined the group of young men who showed an ill-bred and disapproved tendency to sneak off into Ray's room for a smoke. He did not, however, escape one young woman who stood out from the Malay, a young woman with a personality almost as remarkable as that of the glorious creature from London, Nebraska. This was the more or less married young woman named Dorothy, and affectionately called Toddikins by all the St. Oracle's group. She was the kind who look at men appraisingly and expect them to come up, be unduly familiar, and be crushed. She had seven distinct methods of getting men to say indiscreet things, and three variations of reply of which the favorite was to remark with well-bred calmness, I'm afraid you have made a slight error, Mr. Ah. Uh, I didn't quite catch your name. Perhaps they failed to tell you that I attended St. Orgel's every Sunday, and have a husband and child, and am not at all, really, you know. I hope that there has been nothing I said that has given you the idea that I have been looking for a flirtation. A thin, small female with bobbed hair was Toddikins, who kept her large husband and her fat, white grub of an infant somewhere in the back blocks. She fingered a long gold religious chain with her square, stubby hand, while she gazed into men's eyes with what she privately termed daring frankness. 
Tottykins the fair, Tottykins the modern, Tottykins who had read three weeks and nearly all the wicked novel in French and wore a long gold cross, Tottykins who worked so hard in her little flat that she had to rest all of every afternoon and morning, Tottykins, the advanced and liberal, yet without any of the extremes of socialists and artists and vegetarians and other ill-conditioned persons who do not attend St. Orgel's, Tottykins, the firmly domestic whose husband grew more worried every year, Tottykins, the intensely cultured and inquisitive about life, the primitively free and perversely original, who announced in public places that she wanted to live like the spirit of the dancing Bacchanet statue, but had the assistant rector of St. Orgel's, and for coffee every fourth Monday evening. Tidekins beckoned Carl to a corner and said, with her manner of amused condescension, Now you sit right down here, Hawk Erickson, and tell me all about aviation. Carl was not vastly sensitive. He had not disliked the nice young men with eyeglasses. Not till now did he realize how Tidekins' shrill references to the dancing bacchanet and the bacchanetting of her mud-colored Dutch-fashioned hair had bored him. Ennui was not, of course, an excuse, but it was the explanation of why he answered in this wise, very sweetly looking Tottykins in the eye, and patting her hand with a brother-like and altogether maddening condescension. No, no, that isn't the way, Dorothy. It's quite passé to ask me to tell you all about aviation. That isn't done, not in 1912. Oh, Dorothy, oh, no, 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 no. First you should ask me if I'm afraid when I'm flying. Oh, always begin that way. Then you say that there's a curious fact about you. When you're on a high building and just look down once, then you get so dizzy that you want to jump. Then after you've said that, let's see, you're a church member, aren't you? Well, then next you'd say, just how does it feel to be up in an airplane? Or if you don't say that, then you're simply got to say, just how does it feel to fly anyway? But if you're just terribly interested, Dorothy, you might ask about biplanes versus monoplanes, and do I think there'll ever be a flight across the Atlantic? But whatever you do, Dorothy, don't fail to ask me if I'll give you a free ride when I start flying again. And we'll fly and fly like birds, you know, or like the dancing baccarat. That's the way to talk about aviation. And now, you tell me all about babies. Really, I'm afraid babies is a rather big subject to tell all about at a party. Really, you know. That was the only time Carl was not bored at the party, and even then he had spiritual indigestion from having been rude. For the rest of the time, everyone knew everybody else and took Carl aside to tell him that everybody was the most conscientious man in our office, Erickson, why the boss would trust him with anything. It saddened Carl to hear the insurance adjuster boom Oh, you Tottykins, across the room at ten-minute intervals like a human foghorn on the Sea of Unway. They were all so uniformly polite, so neat-minded and church-going and dull. 
Nearly all the girls did their hair in coquetries one exactly like another. Carl is not to be pitied. He had the pleasure of martyrdom when he heard the younger Johnson tell of Martinhurst, the suburb beautiful. He believed that he had reached the nadir of boredom. But he was mistaken. After simple and pleasing refreshments of the wooden plate and paper napkin school, Gertie announced, Now we're going to have some stunts, and you're each to give one. I know you all can, and if anybody tries to beg off, my what will happen? My brother has a new one. For the third time that month, Carl saw Ray turn his collar round and become clerical, while everyone rustled with delight, including the jolly, panting clergyman. And for the fourth time, he saw Gertie Dance gather the golden sheaves. She appeared shy and serious in bloomers and flat dancing shoes, which made her ample calves bulge the more. She started at sight of the harvest moon, and, well, she may have been astonished if she did indeed see a harvest moon there above the gilded buffalo horns on the unit bookcase, rose to her toes, flapped her arms, and began to gather the sheaves to her breast, with enough plump and panting energy to enable her to gather at least a quarter section of them before the whistle blew. It was not only aesthetic, but close to the soil. Then, to banjo accompaniment, the insurance adjuster sighed for his old Kentucky home, which Carl judged to have been located in Brooklyn. The whole crowd joined in the chorus, and— Suddenly, with a shock that made him despise himself for the cynical superiority which he had been enjoying, Carl remembered that Forrest Haviland, Tony Bean, Hank O'Dell, even surly Jack Ryan, and the alien Carnot had sung My Old Kentucky Home on their last night at the Bagby School. He felt their beloved presences in the room. He had to fight against tears as he too joined in the chorus. Then weep no more, my lady. He was beside a California poppy field. The blossom slumbered beneath the moon, and on his shoulder was the hand of Forrest Haviland. He had repented. He became part of the group. He spoke kindly to Tottikins, but presently Tottikins proposed her well-advertised return to her husband and baby, and gave a ten-minute dramatic recital from Byron, and the younger Johnson sang a Swiss mountaineer song with yodels. Gertie looked spectatively at Carl twice during this offering. He knew that the gods were plotting an abominable thing. She was going to call on him for the stunt, which had been inescapably identified with him, the song. I went up in a balloon so big. He met the crisis heroically. He said loudly, as the shaky strains of the Swiss ballad died on the midnight mountain air of the 157th Street, while the older men concealed yawns and applauded, and the family in the adjoining flat rapped on the radiator. I'm sorry my throat's so sore tonight. Otherwise I'd sing a song I learned from a fellow in California. Balloons big. Gertie stared at him dumbfoundedly, but passed to a kitten-faced girl from Minnesota, who was quite ready to give an imitation of a child whose doll has been broken. Her stunt was greeted with, Oh, how cunning! Please do it again. She prepared to do it again. Carl made hasty motions of departure, pathetically holding his throat. 
He did not begin to get restless till he had reached 96th Street and had given up his seat in the subway to a woman who resembled Toddikins. He wondered if he had not been at the old home long enough. At 72nd Street, on an inspiration that came as the train was entering the station, he changed to a local and went down to 59th Street, found an all-night garage, hired a racing car, and at dawn he was driving furiously through Long Island, a hundred miles from New York, on a roadway perilously slippery with falling snow. End of chapter 26